Hey there, welcome to another edition of Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. We're going to be talking about second acts and do-overs this week on the show with New Yorker writer Casey Sepp, whose latest book is sort of a do-over for Harper Lee. Yes, Harper Lee, who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, She'd been working on another book for much of her life, which she was never able to finish. Then Casey picked up the project and did complete it. Then we'll hear from Matteo Lane, who got into comedy after being an oil painter and an opera singer. It's that classic story, oil painter to stand-up comedian. Then we're going to hear some music from Samantha Crane, who will tell us about how her days as a child powerlifter helped prepare her for life as a touring musician. So that is the plan. No heavy lifting or special talent needed. You just sit there right by your radio and get ready for this next episode of Livewire, which gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hi, Luke. Wow. It's a very serious greeting on the show this week. Well, I'm a little upset with you. What what happened? Because you didn't wish me happy International Cat Day, which just passed by, and I got nary a card nor a phone call. You didn't get the card I sent? Did you send me something and I missed it? You know, it's going to sound like I'm typing what is an International Cat Day card (laughs) on my computer right now, Elena, but that's not what's happening. Uh, I definitely got you the appropriate present for that holiday. It's August 8th. August 8th is International Cat Day because my love for cats is infinite. (laughs) (laughs) Well, happy International Cat Day to you and everyone out there listening. Uh, Should we uh, do our little radio show? Meow. Take that as a yes. Molly, are we recording? We're recording right meow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is what happens when a bad joke gets into the water supply. All right. Take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, writer Casey Sepp and comedian Matteo Lane with music from Samantha Crane. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We've got a great show in store for you this week. We did ask the Livewire listeners a question this week. We asked, what unfinished project vexes you the most? Mm. We're going to get those responses coming up. I think we all had 
big expectations for ourselves going into the pandemic. There was going to be a lot of unfinished projects yeah. that got finished. Those and expectations turned to vexpectations. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> and we're going to hear how that worked out for the Livewire listeners coming up in a bit. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is good news happening in the world. Elena, what is the best news you heard all week? Okay, so this news is over a week old. All right. And it's also kind of covered. I've, I've definitely seen a lot of people talking <laughs> wow, about it. Wow, you're really it. selling the sizzle here. <laughs> but it's truly, for me, like, if I'm being honest, the best news that I've heard really all month. You know, the Olympics okay. just ended, the Tokyo Olympics. And this is such a cool story from the Games uh, involving the high jump, which is when you, no pole involved, you just jump over the the, the bar, yeah. right? You kind of flop backwards. That oh, guy, yes. I think his name was uh, Dick Fosbury, the right? The Fosbury flop from Corvallis, Oregon. What, okay, what, what? Okay. But yeah, so the best Fosbury floppers in the world are uh, Mutaz Essa Barshim of Qatar and Gianmarco Tamberi. Barshim is the world champion, and they both went in to the finals just like like neck and neck. And they've been friends, by the way, for like 11 years since they were in like junior competitions together. Yeah, there's probably a lot of downtime standing kind yeah. of at the side of that big cushion and just like kind of shooting the breeze yeah. so people probably become friends. And apparently they had like this really friendly rivalry, and um, so they've known each other for their entire professional careers. Here we are, Tokyo Games. They both uh, have perfect lineups, and uh, by the time the competition is over, they are neck and neck. They've uh, both jumped the same height, and now they've got to go into basically a sudden death huh. round. They call it a jump off, and mm -hmm. Barshim turns uh, to the, the referee. What do you call the Olympic referee? I don't know. The flop watcher. <laughs> the flop watcher. And he says, can we just share the gold medal? What? And Tom Barry, the video of him losing his mind is amazing. And if you if you watch the video 6,000 times like I have, you see Barshim turn to Tom Barry and say, history, my friend. And then they oh just- Oh my gosh. I know. And so I did a little research and um, there have been 120, only 120 shared medals in the entire 125-year history of the Olympic Games. Only 30 shared gold medals, and 0, 0.00 of those were shared at the decision of two rival jumpers. So teammates have agreed to share a gold medal, and judges have forced people from other countries to share a gold medal, but never has one competitor turned to another competitor from another country and said, history, my friend, and then they both have gold. And that's like, for me... Like, I would rather watch an Olympics like that than any of the, like, oh, like somebody with, like, 87 gold medals around their neck jumping up and down and then, like, a Bob Seger song plays or whatever. I love Bob Seger. I mean, he gets all the golds. But this display of friendship, this reaction, for me, that's as, that was as, as high as any jump that they did. Now, did they have an extra gold medal? Because they were like, okay, we have like a gold, we got a bronze, we got a silver. Can somebody go on eBay? Does anybody know where we get one additional? We weren't planning for this. They this called, was supposed to be a... Yeah, they called Dick Fosbury, you know, because he won that yeah. gold back in 68. He wasn't doing sure. anything with it, and he just yeah. FedExed it over, I think. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> the best news that I heard all week actually comes from St. Petersburg, Florida. Mm. Saw this article in the Washington Post about a guy named Al Nixon, and about seven years ago, Al Nixon decided that he wanted to start going to this park called Vinoy Park and watching the sunrise because they have beautiful sunrises there in Florida. 
And he was just sitting on this bench like seven days a week. <laughs> and people started noticing that he was always on this bench. And about a year into it, a woman stopped by to say hi to him. And she said, every morning when I see you sitting here on this bench, I know that everything is going to be okay. And so suddenly Al Nixon has become kind of this local celebrity slash therapist slash sounding board on this bench in St. Petersburg. People stop by and talk to him. People talk about their marriage trouble. Sometimes ah. people just want to sit next to him in silence. He says that one woman comes and just sits there for an hour oh. silently next to him, staring at the sunrise, and then says thanks, and then kind of goes along her way. Whoa. The people who now go and sit with Al Nixon even got a plaque made on this bench, which reads... <laughs> To Al, a loving, loyal friend and a confidant to many. Aww, so he's got his on. own plaque on the bench. And so Al is uh, also really into taking pictures of the sunrise. Mm -hmm. And he likes to put them on his Facebook page and put up inspirational quotes. And this Washington Post article has uh, a number of the pictures that Al has taken. And what I think is so great about it is they are mostly out of focus. <laughs> it is the most dad. I assume these were taken with an iPad. Uh, <laughs> like, every photo my dad sends me of him and my mom is slightly out of focus. And I always uh, think, wow, this okay, this is what you went with, Walt. These are like extremely <laughs> strong dad vibrations coming from Al Nixon sitting there watching the sunrise in St. Petersburg, and I absolutely love it. Beautiful. It's the best news I heard this week. All right, let's invite our first guest over to the show. Her book, Furious Hours, follows Harper Lee from To Kill a Mockingbird fame as she worked on a book that she would never end up publishing, which involved a string of crimes in Alabama, and also the person that pretty much everyone suspected was behind the crimes. It was a reverend named Willie Maxwell. Uh, we talked to the writer Casey Sepp as part of the Portland Book Festival back in November of 2019. Take a listen to this. Hello, Casey. Welcome to the program. Hello, Portland. <laughs> Hello, Luke. Um, this book is just so fascinating, and it, it almost reads like a few different books. There are so many elements to it. Um, how did the story of the Reverend Willie Maxwell get on your radar? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. This is one of these stories that haunted the part of Alabama where it all happened. And it was gripping for the people who lived through it, and intergenerationally people knew about it. But I came to it because of Harper Lee. So, you know, the original story is sensational. You know, a minister accused of killing five family members. He made a half a million dollars in life insurance money off those deaths. He was gunned down by a vigilante at the funeral of his last victim. The same lawyer who had defended him for 10 years then defends the vigilante. So there's all this embedded drama and narrative to the story, but it got even more exciting in 1977 when Harper Lee found out about it and decided she was going to write a book about the story. So I was reporting on Harper Lee's life for The New Yorker, and I found out about 
the Reverend. And that's what she was going to call her book about this case. And I thought it was incredibly interesting. There was an asymmetry. The world knew nothing about her work on this case, but to the people in this part of Alabama, she was embedded in the story. You know, they had met her when she was reporting. She had interviewed the lawyers, the law enforcement officers. She had gotten to know relatives of the victims. And she had just spent nine months in this town and made such a big impression. And so I found the story via her. Because she was, at that point, still, I mean, one of the biggest literary stars in, in America, certainly, and maybe even more so because of how um, elusive she had been after the success of To Kill a Mockingbird? Yeah, quite often, you know, people she would introduce herself to, even in Alabama, where she was probably more famous there than anywhere in the world. Because she was from Monroeville? She was from Monroeville. She's from this tiny town down around Mobile, and the story took place over closer to the Georgia line. And, you know, she was this unassuming 50-year-old woman, kind of salt and pepper hair. And, you know, she'd come and introduce herself and say, you know, I'm Harper Lee. I wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. And you can imagine the excitement, you know, if you'd lived through this case or, you know, you had been an Alabama Bureau of Investigation agent and you've talked to reporters over and over again about the Reverend Willie Maxwell, but here comes this unassuming middle-aged woman who says, I'm Harper Lee and I'm working on a book about this. Do you have some time to talk? So for a lot of people like in this Tom town... Like Tom Clancy calling you if totally. you are I mean, an are you aircraft captain. Yeah, exactly. You're like waiting for the call, yeah. like an Alabamian. You can imagine yeah. no one better than Harper Lee to yeah. tell your story. And so there's tremendous enthusiasm, but she was not recognized there. In fact, she had spent most of her adult life in New York City. And I think one of the interesting things about the book for me was getting to go around New York and learn about her Manhattan lifestyle and this kind of cosmopolitan life she was living. But there again, no one recognized her. You know, one of my favorite facts in the book, um, Harper Lee lived most of her adult life in the same building on the Upper East Side, and it was East 82nd Street. And for a little while, she had these two neighbors, Daryl and John, who eventually became known as Hall and & Oates. And they had no idea they were living on the same floor. They were literally on the first floor with her. Had no idea. You know, and I was like, well, you don't remember, like, you know, a lady with a southern accent? No idea. Because nobody recognized her. She was tremendously famous, but not recognizable. This is Livewire from PRX. We are talking to the writer Casey Sepp about her book, Furious Hours. We recorded this at the Portland Book Festival back in 2019. Uh, we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? 
What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my. There's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, let's pick up our conversation with writer Casey Sepp talking about her book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. We recorded this back in 2019 as part of the Portland Book Festival. Let's take it back to Alabama if we can and talk a little bit about this this guy, the Reverend Willie Maxwell. Who was he? And, 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 and when did he start being suspiciously close to people losing their lives? Yeah, it's interesting. So he was well-known. He was born in 1925 and distinguished himself both in his army service in World War II and when he came home and started preaching. He was ordained in the Baptist church and quite renowned for his ministry and, you know, was a great extemporaneous preacher, had a thorough command of scripture and was just really sought after around this part of Alabama. And so people knew him as the Reverend or Preacher Maxwell, and he was truly just one of the most well-known preachers in the area. Area. And that was what he was known for until 1970, when his wife, who'd been married to for about 25 years, was found murdered, and he was the prime suspect. And in fact, the police were quite sure they were going to get a conviction. They had a phenomenal witness, mm-hmm. a, a next-door neighbor to the reverend, who was supposed to testify that he had been out all night, and in fact, that he had called home and lured his wife to the very place where her body was found. That woman, when the case went to trial, changed her testimony, and the police were flummoxed. You know, what, why on earth had she changed her story? And in fact, she provided the reverend with an alibi. She also, a few months after that, became the second Mrs. Maxwell. She so married the she dude. She married the reverend, and so she's the second Mrs. Maxwell, and... Even more surprising was when she turned up dead under similarly suspicious circumstances. I wouldn't call that surprising. After that. Uh, it was surprising to her, I okay, think. Okay, fair. You know, yeah, fair enough. Um, surprising to her. Um, and, you know, the, the thing to say about her marriage to the Reverend and part of the reason he became instantly notorious in this part of Alabama is her husband had died unexpectedly, and that's why she was able to marry the Reverend. And so over and over again, for the people witnessing these things, they thought that the Reverend Willie Maxwell was able to get what he wanted whenever he wanted it. 
and the police could do nothing, and the insurance companies could, could do nothing, because you can believe the police were upset about these crimes, but the life insurance companies were furious. Because he had policies. He had dozens of, of policies on single people, and you know would, would take out a policy with 15 different companies and 17 policies total, and so it was really a racket. And, and I think for, you know again, people in the area, there was no mystery about what was happening. It was mysterious how he was actually killing these people, and that was part of what I think when Harper Lee got interested in this case, what was hard for her in writing about it is there's just a lot of mystery about causes of death. In fact, some of these deaths weren't even officially declared homicides. Right, because they couldn't figure it out. 22-year-old nephew of the reverends found dead on the side of the road in, in his car and no cause of death could be determined. He had been seen earlier that day totally healthy. It seemed like he really would go with this move of killing someone and then putting them in a car trying to stage a car wreck, which was never very convincing. The cars were never that damaged. And they were all on the same road, right? The same yeah, basically, <laughs> basically all, I mean, very near his house. And, you know, it's funny. There's a little bit of laughter gurgling up in the room, and, and it's I'm understandable. judging those people, by the way. No, no, it's, you're That's not. That's definitely not, the wrong no, no, response. Don't listen to Luke. No, 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 no. You're not being judged. In fact, I mean, this Speak is one of yourself. the peculiar. Okay. You are being judged, but only by one third of the panel here. Uh, <laughs> No, I mean, I think it is one of these interesting things about the genre of true crime and about these sorts of stories we tell and the way in which we inoculate ourselves with humor about mm. them. And it is certainly true. You know, I've interviewed people who, who knew the murder victims and, you know, they often got into giggle fits about something or other, or there's some part of the story that always struck them as ironic or comical. And it's hard to know you know, what to do about that and, and how to tell these stories with care and with concern. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, especially with the, the, the Reverend Maxwell, a lot of people experience this just as a kind of curiosity. And because so many people associated with the Reverend were, were found murdered, two wives, a brother, a nephew, a stepdaughter, there, there were a series of voodoo rumors that got associated with him. So he's an ordained Baptist minister, but the explanation folks came up with was that he was a practitioner of voodoo. And that's how he could get away with it. You know, he could kill somebody, the police could never prove it, he could charm a jury, he could charm a judge, and that's how he was getting away with it. So there's this overlayer to this story that, you know, you, you want to think about carefully and critically. It's, it's the truth. It's how people talked about the story. It's not just something that got added many years later, but it's also the kind of insulation to make people feel safe mm -hmm. and to make sense of why the police could do nothing why the judicial system failed over and over again. And I think it's, again, one of the things that drew Harper Lee to this story, both what happened and how people made sense of it. And this is one of my favorite parts about your book, too, talking about telling a true story, is it's not just about the Reverend Willie Maxwell, and it's not just about this trial. It's about, like, true crime in America. You talk about Truman Capote, who uh, Harper Lee went with him to research the, in cold the blood. case that made In Cold Blood, and how maybe I didn't I never thought about it this way, but maybe his style of reporting might have affected the way in which she holds standards for reporting herself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Harper Lee was a snob about a lot of things. <laughs> uh, and she was a snob about genre. And, and mm. she was a snob about some of the trends in narrative nonfiction. Um, and she had very conservative ideas about the difference between fiction and nonfiction. And poor thing, you know, some of you all might know this, but um, Truman Capote wasn't born in Monroeville, Alabama, but he spent a few years of his childhood there and a few summers of his adolescent life there, too, right next door to Harper Lee. 
and he's the model for Dill and To Kill a Mockingbird, and their friendship was formative for the both of them, and formative in ways that nurtured her talent, and formative in ways that she opposed things that he had done and decisions he made and the, the style of his reportage. And so indeed, when In Cold Blood came out, I think she was surprised by its contents. And some of the letters I was able to include in the book express her disapproval of choices he made, mm. fabrications he brought to the story, exaggerations, liberties he took with them. And, you know, she had been there for all of the reporting, so she had strong opinions about what people had actually said and the expectations she had for the framework of that book. And so what she tried to do with the Reverend Willie Maxwell is set herself up in opposition to In Cold Blood. She was going to write a true story. She was going to stick to the facts. She was only going to do the old-fashioned, straight-laced journalism she admired. Now, let me be fair to Truman Capote. She never published her book. Right. <laughs> you know, we get to read In Which, Cold Blood for all the liberties he took. You yeah, know, there is it, a book that we can read and judge and, you know, express our approval or disapproval of. And with Harper Lee, you know, the last third of my book about her life as a writer and what drew her to this case and what made it hard for her to write this story. There are particular things about the Maxwell case that are difficult to write about. And then there was her overall difficulties as a writer. You know, she had um, a drinking problem. She struggled with depression. She was a perfectionist. She had one of the worst case of writer's block of, of anyone I've ever read about. So there were general things that made it hard for her to write and specific things about this case. But at the end of the day, I do feel like I have to be fair to Truman Capote and say, you know, he did write his book. Yeah. <laughs> Were you ever daunted by it? Did you ever worry that you'd be like the second writer who couldn't actually write this story into a book? Yeah, and worse than that, you know, the truth is so so Harper Lee uh, died in 2016. She's 89 years old. And, you know, I was interviewing a lot of her friends and family and folks who had lived through the, the Reverend Maxwell story. The truth is a lot of them are octogenarians. And, you know, I would get these text messages or phone calls where they'd be like, are you ever going to finish that book? And of course, I felt like I was working pretty quickly. I only found out about the story in 2015. The book came out this year. I thought it's not a bad pace. But of course, for them, they'd been waiting 40 years. <laughs> you know, they had been waiting since 1977 for a book like this to come out. So they had a lot of urgency and, and expectation around it. So yes, I, of course, worried sometimes that I would disappoint them and, and not finish. But um, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm glad to say it's out in the world between two covers. You know, the, the cheat in my book and, and the reason I like to think I was able to do it and she couldn't is I made her into a character. You know, right. the last third of my book is her story, and she would never have done that. She was pathologically private. You know, she would never have written the kind of Nancy Drew version of Harper Lee knocking on doors, getting out her notebook, turning on her tape recorder. And I tell you everything I can about her work on this case and her interest in true crime. And there's a lot about her time in Kansas with Capote, and there's a lot about her life in New York. And all of those are things she would never have put into her own version of this. She would have said, I'm not the story. But of course, for us, she is a big part of the story. Yeah, it is just an incredible book. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad to have read it. And I just feel like it was opening a side of the world that I just didn't even know anything about. So Casey Sepp, great work. The book is Furious Thanks Hours. So Thanks for coming on Livewire. That was Casey Sepp talking to us as part of the Portland Book Festival back in 2019 here on Livewire. Her book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee, is available everywhere right now. And you can also check out Casey's writing in The New Yorker. Hey, special thanks this episode to Amanda Bird 
of Seattle, Washington. Amanda is part of the Livewire member community and is generously supporting our show with a donation each month. And we are very thankful for that support because it's how we're able to do the show. So thanks, Amanda, for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire from PRX. Of course, each week we like to ask the Livewire listeners a question. This week we asked, what unfinished project vexes you the most? People sent in those responses. Elena's been collecting them up. What are you seeing, Elena? Okay, how about this one from Cindy? Cindy's unfinished project, the sweater I started when my brother was graduating college. (laughs) His children have now all been graduated from college for a couple years. (laughs) So it's a a multi-generational project. (laughs) I love it. Maybe the the grandchildren will enjoy a a nice sweater. Uh, I wonder at what point you just give that project up. I guess never, if you're listener Cindy. Or you'd make it into like a baby onesie, you know? Right, or how about a sock? One sock. Yeah. All right, what's another project that's vexing our listeners? This one from Jenny is great. Okay. Jenny says, there are at least two rooms in our house that have a wall that is unpainted. Not a design choice. We just ran out of paint and never got around to finishing it. We've lived in our house for four years. And the worst part is that the paint doesn't stop at the corner. It just continues two to six inches onto the next wall. (laughs) I know that move. I've done sort of a version of that where I painted all the way up to the hard spot, like the kind of delicate little detail work, and then lived in houses for years where I never went back and actually did like, again, the kind of when you're cutting in the edges. So it's like a room that if you sort of squint, it looks sort of okay. But if you go up to any of the small little detail areas, you can see where I ran out of motivation. Hmm. You and Jenny, I think would have a lovely uh, home renovation business. (laughs) Absolutely. Look for our new HGTV show coming soon. Uh, What's uh, another project that has vexed our listeners sufficiently? Oh, how about this one from Chris? Chris's vexing project. I've been looking to get remarried for the last six years. <laughs> oh. I mean, that's the ultimate, I guess, project, right? Is to find a person to help you work on all the future projects that will vex you. Um, right. If you're yeah. into that kind of thing, you know. I feel like you should just put that on your hinge profile, Chris. I think there's some people out there that would probably be interested. The first thing I thought when I read Chris's thing was, let's find Chris a partner, which is uh, <laughs> my meddling, you know, Virgo moon. <laughs> <laughs> Such a Virgo. All right, let's uh, get to our next guest here on Livewire, who actually started his career out as an oil painter slash opera singer in Italy before he got into stand-up comedy. Elena, he is apparently fluent in five languages. Um, He's also been on lots of late-night TV shows, performing his comedy and the HBO show Crashing. Check this out. It's Matteo Lane recorded live at the Triple Door in Seattle back in 2019. Hi, you guys. Thank you so much. I'm obviously gay. I, um... Is anyone else here gay, or am I the only one? Work. Hey, girl. And uh, Hey, girls, what's up? I love lesbians. Give it up for lesbians. They are the only reason gays have rights. They're the best. 
I always get stressed out at Pride because Pride posters are always like steroids and jock straps and drag queens. I'm like, that is fine. But also we should have like a poster of two middle-aged lesbians paying their mortgage on time. <laughs> it could be great. So, all right, Seattle. <laughs> I mean, you guys really take Starbucks seriously. Uh, I went to Starbucks once. They asked for my name to put it on the back of the cup. I was like, Mateo. She turned around. She made my drink. She came back. It said potato. <laughs> Here's the thing. When you hear potato, you stop writing on the cup. That's when you say... <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> I heard potato. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what is your name? <laughs> what barista is like, ah, the fifth potato today. <laughs> Baristas, you're not making coffee in Rome, okay? You're just an employee at Starbucks. I. I've never walked in like, Buongiorno, Matteo, cosa vorresti bere oggi? Ah, ma cappuccino, ma aspetta, Francesco! You know. One time I went into Starbucks, I was wearing fake, gla fake glasses. They had no lenses in them, but I was feeling myself. And uh, I walked in, I went up to the employee at Starbucks, and I was like, hi, you know, I'll have a, like a shot of a espresso. And she didn't even type, she just looked at me and she goes, yeah, your glasses don't have any lenses in them. Okay, like, what was I gonna say? Oh, my God, you're right. I thought this was a Sabaro. Like, <laughs> then her gay coworker wearing real glasses overheard the conversation. And he, that's another thing, too, at Starbucks. I have no idea why. There is always, like, one, there's minimum one gay working. It's like a requirement. The minimum one gay working. And if one gay is working, like, you know, things get done. If there's more than one gay, nothing gets done. <laughs> One gay is always manning a sinking ship. He's always like, Sue, hurry up, let's go, my muffins, what do you want? You're like, <laughs> Two gays is like, ah, oh, what does she want? So, <laughs> so, he sees that I'm wearing fake glasses, he's wearing real glasses, and just like, like slithers into the conversation and just plays the biggest victim. He's like, I find it interesting that those who don't need glasses choose to wear them. When we who need them have no choice. <laughs> okay, Jafar. Uh, and I just wanted my coffee. I was like, yeah, can we speed this along? And they doubled down. They're like, well, why are you wearing those glasses? So I said what I thought was funny. I was like, your job's as real as these glasses. And they got, oh, they, oh, am I wrong? It's a fake job. You go boo yourself. It, it, there are so many fake, okay, the world's fakest job, Pharmacists. Why are you wearing a lab coat? There is no science happening back there. <laughs> there is no chemistry. You're not in Jurassic Park. You're not creating new dinosaurs. You're in the lowest form of drag. Yes. I, and so much attitude. Also, like, you know, one time I was in Ohio and this guy stands up and he's like, I went to six years of pharmacy school. I'm like, what did you do for six years in pharmacy school? Did you just put on a lab coat and your teacher's like, all right, everyone. How many pills do you see? So... <laughs> 
I live in New York now, uh, can you tell? Uh, full of rage. And thing is, I've always wanted to be a comedian. This is my dream. And Well, that's not true. My dream is to be Mariah Carey, but here we are. And I met her, by the way, three months ago. I met her in an elevator, and she was well-lit and nervous. Okay, so, but... When I moved to New York and I started doing comedy, you know, you get an agent, you get a manager, and they start to convince you that you have to do other lines of work. Like, the one thing they're always saying is, well, you've got to become an actor, and that's what comedians do, and you've got to be like Seinfeld and get in there! And it's like, I don't know if I want to be an actor, but, you know, I'm a team player, so I'm going out in all these auditions, and I'm just bombing them because I have gay voice. Like, in my head, I sound like, yeah, but... Oh, I hear myself all the time, like, am I Julia Childs? Just like, bonjour, girls! Like, I am fully Mrs. Garrett, but... And, and it's fine. I like having gay voice. It is fine, all right? There's a spectrum of gay voice, all right? My older brother's also gay, so my dad's real proud. And... My dad calls this his second Vietnam, but, uh... Wakes up in the middle of the night like, another one! But... I, I, you know, my voice is gay, but it's somewhere in the middle. My brother's voice is like, hello. And then my friend Jesse, he's the kind of gay, he's completely bald, but halfway through a conversation, he'll wipe away hair. It's not there. Uh, so, but I'm going on these auditions, and it's really hard because, you know, I really, I can't audition. Like, I went on this one audition, and the character description was literally, Zach, 19, football player. Well, Zach's going to have a secret to share with everyone. <laughs> When do we huddle? You know, it's like, I don't know what to do. This is all I got. And if you're going to be out and you're going to be gay, the only roles that you can audition for are literally, like, gay best friend or robot in space. That's it. Every robot in every movie has been gay. Just think about it first. First of all, the gayest one is C-3PO. That's without saying. I mean, the, and he, I know he never came out of the closet, but he did just get gayer in each Star Wars movie. Like, the first movie was very subtle. He was just like, oh my. But then, like, by Return of the Jedi, at one point, he literally goes, oh, dear Lord. I'm like... And no one mentions that R2-D2 is a lesbian. She's a full-blown lesbian. She's smart. People need her. She came with a tool belt. She is a lesbian. Yes. Yes. When the Millennium Falcon's broken down, they're not calling 3PO. They're like, R2, get in here. 3PO just acts like me in any high school situation, like, oh, my. All right, thank you so much. Mateo Lane. What a fun audience. <laughs> so nice. I love it. All right, uh, Mateo. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, along with being a comedian, you're also a classically trained opera singer. Correct. We have heard that you have a range of six octaves. Yeah. Okay, well, along with your six octave range and all of your other amazing knowledge, we wanted to try to test your expertise on opera. Okay. okay? This is a little segment we call Let's Get Quizzical. <laughs> okay. Let's get quizzical, quizzical. I want to get quizzical. Let's see if you know your stuff. All right, here's how this is going to work, Mateo. Operas are, let's be honest, they're just about the caddy drama. 
right? I mean, yes. that's why soap operas are called soap operas. Yeah. So we're going to give you a plot point, okay. and we want you to tell us if it is from a real opera okay. or from, like, All My Children. <laughs> this is a quiz that we're calling Soap or Opera. Alternative title, Soap Opera or Nope, Opera. Okay. <laughs> a lot of ways to slice this. Uh, Elena, can you keep score? Sure. Extra points, Mateo, if you're feeling up for it, if you can sing any of the answers. Okay. It's not necessary, but if you just want to... All right. Yes. Uh, question number one. In the, the climactic moments of this story, a hero is sentenced to die by being buried alive. As he is sealed into his tomb, he finds his love, who he thought was already dead. That love is there as well in the tomb. They commit to die together. Is this a soap opera or an opera? Soap opera. You are 100% wrong. It is an opera. This is the end <laughs> I don't know. It of sounds Aida by Verdi. Oh, it is Aida, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although, in your defense, there are many buried alive instances from various soap operas, including Days of Our Lives, All My Kids, and Passions. What's Passions? Uh, passions. If you know about Passions, you know about Passions. It was this passions. like late uh, 90s, early 2000s. It was made for hungover college kids. Like they let some very drug-induced people make a soap opera. There was a little person who was possibly a figment of this like witch's imagination. <laughs> All right, question number two. Okay. In this dramatic tale, the heroine is demonically possessed after being drugged, then saved through an exorcism by the man she loves. Is this a soap or soap opera? A soap opera. It is a soap opera. Okay. You're absolutely right. It I don't is from exorcism and opera. It's from a, a, an especially insane '90s period of Days of Our Lives. The heroine. We have some knowing. I hear some knowing response out there in the audience. Days of we got Days of Our Lives fans here with us. That is an interesting... I like you're splitting your time between public radio. In days of our lives. Dr. Marlena Edwards, who became possessed, levitated, and then was saved when her husband remembered that he had once been ordained as a priest. What? <laughs> yep. Can you imagine being on that writing job? Like, yeah. well, let's see if this flies. <laughs> and the answer is, yes, it the does. The answer is yes. They're like, we're desperate. More. <laughs> I used to watch a soap opera in Italy that all took place in a mall. And it's just so over the top. I assume that's Italian for, can we go to Orange Julius? <laughs> that's just them ordering coffee. They're so dramatic. <laughs> um, all right, here's another one. Uh, in this story, the hero is saved from an unwanted marriage by a birthmark that reveals his almost wife is in fact his real mother. Is it an opera? <laughs> I'm not endorsing it as a concept. It's something that's in either a soap opera Men or an opera. Men just come and arrest you, and it's like, oh, I think that's an opera. You're absolutely right, Matteo Lane. It is an opera. It is from the marriage of Figaro. Figaro! Give him some points, Passarello. What range is that? Which, which octave is that? <laughs> what octave? It was probably like a C4. I don't know. Okay. okay. All right, final question, Matteo. Okay. In this, in this epic saga, an evil billionaire attempts to take over a town and kick out its inhabitants, uh, is fought back by a dedicated battalion of citizens. Is this uh, an opera or a soap opera? An opera? Trick question. It's the real soap opera that is Jeff Bezos trying to build an Amazon headquarters okay. in New York. In Queens. It's ripped from the headlines of real life. <laughs> How did Matteo do, Elena? 
He got the highest score in the history of me keeping score. Beautiful. Mateo Lane, everybody. Thanks, everyone. That was Mateo Lane right here on Livewire. Recorded that back in 2019 at the Triple Door in Seattle. Uh, Mateo is hitting the road this year. He is going to be back out on tour. And if you want to see where he'll be, you can go to MateoLaneComedy.com. And you can also see some of his paintings Ah. at that website. So uh, do check that out. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarella. we got to take a quick break here on Livewire. But don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, our musical guest this week has toured with a range of artists, including the Avett Brothers, Neutral Milk Hotel, and Brandy Carlisle, among others. Uh, she's won two NAMIs, which are Native American Music Awards and also the Indigenous Music Award for Best Rock Album. Uh, she was actually flying to Portland to be on Livewire the day that the pandemic officially shut everything down the first time. Mm. So last summer, we dialed her up in Norman, Oklahoma. She chatted with us and even played us a song. So uh, check this out. Samantha, welcome to Livewire. Thank you for having me. Um, I saw this picture of you in No Depression Magazine powerlifting as a kid. It's probably the most cool singer-songwriter-related photo I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) How old are you in this picture, and what was the story? I think the main picture they used, I was like five years old. Oh, my gosh. You're, like, lifting a lot of weight. Yeah, it's like 100 pounds, (gasps) (laughs) like, as a five-year-old. Your form Um, is amazing, too, by the way. (laughs) I think I have, like, a side ponytail. (laughs) Like, it's really cute. That's a family thing, right? Your, Your dad and uncles and everybody in your family, they were really elite power lifters? Yeah, I grew up in a family of, like, legendary competitive powerlifters. And powerlifting is a weird sport because it's, like, this scrappy, like, kid brother of weightlifting, which is, like, what you see in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just happened to be, like, really good at it. Not that I necessarily loved it by any means. It was more something that I was sort of ushered into mm-hmm. because it was a family thing. And there weren't, like, a lot of kids doing it back then. Like, it was basically just me and my little brother that must have prepared you for touring, though, just being on the road. <laughs> that was what the whole essay was about. They had me r- write an essay, and they were like, you can write about whatever you want. And for some reason, I was just thinking about the similarities between traveling for these powerlifting meets whenever I was a kid and then what I was doing as a touring musician. I mean, me and my mom and dad and brother were all just on the weekends. We had this, like, old Dodge van that we would all pile in and drive to, like, Cincinnati or wherever it was. And we'd all kind of, like, wearily walk into some, you know, broken-down Best Western where they were having the powerlifting meet. And then we would just, like, 
compete and unload everything. And my mom would sell knee wraps and books and vitamins and stuff like a merch table, like a legitimate merch table. And then we would all just like exhausted, go back to the, you know, motel room and like stuff our face with Doritos and watch cops. You know, it's just like, it's exactly what, it's exactly what bands do. That's exactly what bands do. So there's a lot of similarities. Um, I was reading uh, a little bit about the lead up to this latest album of yours and what was going on in your life. And you had had a series of car accidents that were not your fault. Own a stress. Right. I like <laughs> people, to make sure people that people crashed into that. you, but you were dealing with some real serious health stuff with your hands and, and you play guitar. And is there anything you can tell me about the writing of this album? Yes. I had spent about a year not touring, not playing. Um, my hands were just in too much pain, which sort of spiraled me into like a really bad space mentally as well. So I just was kind of in this process of like relearning who I was outside of like Samantha Crane, the musician, if I couldn't do this anymore. Mm. Um, we kind of have these small deaths like in our life. There's like a power surge and all the electricity goes off and you're kind of like caught mid sentence like I wasn't really ready to leave this situation I was here and and there's no control over that and you just sort of have to get on with it then I slowly kind of just through different therapies got use of my hands back Mm. and just immediately started writing like I kind of keep audio um, diaries all the time anyways. That was something that one of my therapists was having me do. She was just like, just go on long walks and just talk into an audio recorder so you can just work through whatever's going on. And what it turned into was digging through that and finding a record full of songs in there. Wow. Well, speaking of which, uh, what song are we going to hear? I'm going to play a song called High Horse. This this song is about kind of how I, I have lots of like photos and letters laying around the house. And sometimes when I look through them, it feels almost like a stranger was living that part of my life. And it's kind of what the whole record's about. So, All right. This is Samantha Crane here on the Livewire House Party. Could have made 
I tell myself that when I'm talking to myself A disagreement seems as natural Eyes are plant bending towards the sun And from that high horse where I sat You were also up there on your own ride An emergency And we both were in shock But these days I know the drill a great heartache and I know the weight of a big mistake I know the feel of a magical moment fully explained and so do we just act smile even now So many years pass but I know Man I know too much now So many years pass but I know Man I know That was Samantha Crane right here on Livewire. Her album, A Small Death, from last year is available now, along with a brand-new four-song EP she put out, I Guess We Live Here Now, (laughs) which is great and I think sums up all of our feelings. Yep. All right, before we – and by that I mean Zoom. I Mm. guess we live here now, Elena. (laughs) All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be chatting with Juno Award-winning Toronto rapper Shad. He's also the host of the Netflix original docuseries Hip Hop Evolution, uh, which won an Emmy and a Peabody Award. We're also going to be talking to Cecily Strong from Saturday Night Live and Elena's favorite show, Schmigadoon. Uh, she's also got a new memoir out and uh, we are going to be looking for your answers to our listener question what is the listener question for next week's show Elena what is something that people would be surprised to learn about you Okay, if you have an answer to that question, something that people would be surprised to learn about you, please submit it via Twitter or Facebook. We are at Livewire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Casey Sepp, 
Mateo Lane, and Samantha Crane. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Jennifer Vo is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the State of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Amanda Bird of Seattle, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. <laughs>